Right. Other one is you'll have to forgive my Ashkenazis. I'll, I'll try and speak a little bit in Havarasvardit, but I'll flip every so often probably into my mother native um, Germanic uh, tongue. Okay, so it's, as I said, a huge honor to be here. And um, I can only apologize, I can't be here more often. Uh, just I teach usually this. Uh, so this night I uh, got a, a night off that's, uh, so we can teach here. So it's a share and dis share discussion. I want to begin the story. The question of was was Rambam, was he concealing his Aristotelianism uh, with a very prominent and relatively famous academic, uh, Leo Strauss. Strauss is kind of the, the modern proponent of this idea, but we'll soon we'll trace its history, hopefully at some point. Um, and also, uh, Sina, you'll tell me also time-wise where, where um, we're going too long, too boring, or, or you've got to cut me off, whatever. It's never too boring with you, Rav, so take your time. <laughs> and also, if people want to ask along the way, hopefully there'll be time for questions, but if there's points you want to clarify, I feel you want to violently disagree, save that till the end. You want to thrash the whole thesis, save it till the end as well. But if you, the points of clarification or questions along the way feel more than invited. Um, okay, so Strauss um, was a German-American uh, academic, political philosopher, Classicist, is born 1899 and died in 1970, October 73, uh, two years before I was born. And, um, and amongst his many contributions to academia and, and to thought in general, was his analysis of esotericism and exotericism in political writing, in philosophical writing. Well, that means ex the exoteric, again, I, I, I hope I'm not patronizing anybody for, uh, uh, I don't know, everyone's probably got different backgrounds and knowledge, but I'll just, I'll try to when, when, a, when a term is, is potentially not understandable by everybody, I'll try and, and just explain it. And if, if you find that you all know or, or, or I'm not explaining things well, just uh, stop me. Um, okay, so exoteric meaning is, the, meaning is the overt meaning of the text. The esoteric is the hidden one. Um, he, in fact, in 1952, has actually a, quite a famous work called Persecution and the Art of Writing. He actually has an argument that before this 18th century, pretty much all major thinkers, it sounds like he's saying, it's certainly many, um, wrote in a very repressed manner because of the nature of censorship, because thinkers were often actually challenging and norms at the time, but were afraid. So their style of writing, the default style, he felt in 1930s Germany could relate to it, being incredibly careful about what you write and how you write it. But if you trace his intellectual um, journey, it actually begins with, with Harambam. It begins with Maimonides and Al-Farabi. Those who know the guide, which I assume is most people here, will know that Al-Farabi is possibly the most quoted figure in the guide. I haven't counted, but very likely. Certainly an enormous influence um, in terms of, of uh, philosophy, physics, all, all the things we would uh, understanding of Aristotle on the Rambam. And Al-Farabi did actually write a number of works that are clearly designed for different audiences in which he pretty much overtly actually advocates different positions. Some are more Aristotelian, some more for the masses are... are a more, if you like, quote, you might call it something mainstream Islamic or naive Islamic or pre-philosophic Islamic. Uh, and Strauss is uh, convinced that the Rambam is the same. Um, and that his works for the masses, the Pirush uh, HaMishnah and the, and the uh, Mishneh Torah are, are kind of more, um, at least overtly, and more clearly um, mainstream, naive, pre-philosophic, although they're clearly not pre-philosophic. But meaning they're kind of taking what you'd think were standard Jewish approaches to things like Ashkaha, Nevoah, Nisim, etc., etc. Although again, that's always a bit difficult because he doesn't take those positions, those texts. But you'd, you wouldn't be troubled, put it that way, if you were a, 
let's use a quantum better term if you were an untrained philosophically not very trained you wouldn't be you would he wants to argue you wouldn't have been troubled by those works and in the Morena Vuchim, he argues in the guide in, in the um, Dalalat, he, he basically there also he took one position overtly, but there already he let you see what's going on beneath the surface. Now, one of the difficulties with that straight away is you could actually argue that about any of the Rambam's works. But it goes like this: the overt text of the guide, the overt position articulated, in the, particularly in the second section of the guide, is that yes, Rambam. Um, uses Aristotle's argument for the existence of God. He does, he equivocates, um, he, he doesn't like the, the position that was taken by the Kalam philosophers. Broadly speaking, the Islamic world was divided. Again, I, I'm, this is not a, a talk on Islamic medieval philosophy, so, but broadly speaking, you kind of say in the, uh, in the Eastern Islamic world, um, it was more typical to think along the lines of, of the Mutakalim when he talks about the, the Kalam, um, which had some great scholars and thinkers, but they, they engage with Aristotelian thought, typically negating a lot of its core ideas. They took a more, if you like, traditionalist approach. Their view was that natural laws are somewhat illusory. It's ultimately, everything is reducible to kind of these indivisible infinitesimal particles that take on, on, on forms. It, does, it doesn't that take on uh, properties. It's not so important to understand their view for this. The point is that they believe the universe has a beginning. They believe there was a contradiction built into Aristotle because Aristotle talks about the fact that you can't have an actual infinity, only a potential infinity, but then he also believes the universe can be eternally eternal. And so they argue they found a contradiction. They basically argue the universe had to have a beginning. Rambam attacks their arguments, the, the models they build, but he says that the truth is whether they're right or, or whether Aristotle's right. Aristotle believed in eternity of the universe so whichever one is correct it doesn't matter because either one has to accept the idea of god who's one who's incorporeal that's effectively the strategy of the guide and then he, rambam acknowledges there's differences there's going to be very important differences one is whether we believe in creation in the in the kind of literal or, or almost any natural reading of, of Bereshit, or whether whether that has to be radically reinterpreted another will affect things like how we look at Ashkacha. Right, according to Aristotle, there can be no ashkacha, not from God anyway. God is an inert uh, first cause. That's the usual way of understanding Aristotle um, and therefore doesn't directly intervene in anything. Um, that has to be done through the active intellects, lower down. Um, it affects nevuah, because obviously prophecy wouldn't be God talking. It would be man climbing up and maybe getting some insight. It would affect lots and lots and lots of things. So overtly, the Rambam's position is actually somewhere in between. Um, he, he kind of, he, he accepts the Aristotelian proof of God. He doesn't accept that there's a knockout argument for eternity. The university doesn't accept there's an argument either way uh, that's convincing. He dedicates a lot of time to analyzing the logic of arguments purporting to show one way. And he, he concludes there isn't really, uh, uh, in his time, a knockout blow either way. And therefore, since it will take, it will do uh, quite a lot of textual and uh, theological reworking away from the default natural position. We will um, work with the assumption of creation. We will work with the assumptions that are not, you know, he does wrestle a lot with where well, Ashkachad does and doesn't fit in, doesn't take quite the Aristotelian position, but nor does he take the opposite position and so on. But that according to, according to, um, and same with Navua, same with all of these things. Uh, according to Strauss, all of that's actually an exoteric, um, necessary smoothing over. But actually, if you listen deeply and carefully throughout the guide are little hints that's not the Rambam's real position. That number one, 
there was a more radical underlying position, which he's letting only those who are really scholarly and really paying close attention pick up on. And that is that actually he believed in much, much more strong Aristotelian position than he lays out, uh, than he, he, he lays out himself. And number two, Strauss goes even further. I'll, I'll give you the defenses of position one, and then I'll talk about position two. But position two is actually Ramba may even have doubted whether God existed at all. That is the standard way to understand Strauss. Strauss himself writes very esoterically, so you can't be 100% sure what he's saying, but that, that's the standard way of understanding him. Now, what, what are the arguments for each of these positions? And, and by the way, Strauss, you should know, those of you who read, who look for the English translation, so one of the best ones is the, uh, is the Shlomo Pines, would have been the native tribe, we'll call him Pines, it's just that it reads better in English that way. Um, but he himself actually was originally much more conservative in his reading of the Rambam, and Strauss actually convinced him to uh, believe in this esoteric position, and so did many others. I would say till around two, I mean, it's still a position that exists within academia, no question about it. Um, I'll talk about the current position soon, but the arguments for this, Strauss has many. Strauss has a lot of very careful attention to the text, picks up on all sorts of clues he believes the Rambam has left us, including, and, and people often think he's going too far on this, but there's actually maybe one of, based on a text the Rambam has nothing to do with the Torah, but in, in numbers where he, he believes even the numbering of chapters gives hints to what the Rambam's thinking. Okay, most of his ideas are considered, most people would be at least skeptical about them, but there are some that are quite strong and oft repeated arguments for believing in an esoteric view. One of them, and probably the most famous, is the introduction to the Rambam, the third introduction, if you, if you, it depends on how you divide the introductions, right? But the last, almost the last line before he starts the, the actual um, chapter one of section one is when he talks about why contradictions appear in books. He gives seven different reasons. The fifth one is, um, is that sometimes when you're teaching very difficult matter, so you have to necessarily, uh, you know, teach in oversimplified ways that later on, as you get more and more complex and, and, and the students more and more able to understand, when you look back, you'll think it's a contradiction to what he said earlier, you'll realize he was just providing a stepping stone. You know, I think we can think nowadays of lots of analogies to this. When you're learning uh, chemistry in the beginning, you learn like, uh, you know, electrons, these little balls that go flying around things. And when you get older, you learn a bit more physics, you realize that that was a, a kind of very, very crude analogy that eventually breaks down. So a stepping stone approach, you have to say things in, in more in more simplistic ways or without perfect analogies for them as you're building up and afterwards it will look like there's contradictions. But then the seventh reason is that sometimes you, you're in very, very deep things, you're going to have to hide a little bit for the mess. I'm, I'm going to read to you our Rav Kapach's translation of this, or Kafich, how do you pronounce him? I'll call him Rav Kapach, I hope you don't mind. But uh, there he, he says in the seventh reason, um, just uh, quoted inside here. The seventh reason, when things are very deep, you have to hide some and reveal others. Sometimes you need to basically be build something on a particular premise. And that will create a problem in another place. Elsewhere, you'll develop an argument that's going to rely on a different premise that contradicts the first premise, that, that contradicts the premise in the, in the first argument. And therefore, we need to make sure the masses don't figure out there's a contradiction there. And uh, that's what he says. And then 
he basically says at the end, at least in the standard translations, that all the contradictions you're going to find in the guide are of the fifth and seventh nature. There was one other text that also put the sixth in, but the key is the seventh. The seventh is like, you know, you have to hide things from the masses. And that leads this, oh, that, that's obviously a very, a very natural to go from there and go, why are we hiding from the masses? Presumably because, and it's very important the masses don't pick up on these contradictions. So that's a good, good ground to suspect there's something the masses that we should be afraid of the masses knowing. And an obvious understanding will be something the masses will consider heretical or challenging or undermining to their faith or to their adherence to the law. So you might have a kind of a sophisticated view that if, if you really understood things well, you could be an Aristotelian and be fully committed to, to Torah mitzvot. But if you're um, a bit less sophisticated and you took an Aristotelian view and you didn't have kind of these naive views of reward and punishment and God about to intervene and hurt you, you would probably drop to our mitzvot. So we have to make sure the message doesn't go down. That's, that's a standard uh, reason, obviously what one that uh, Strauss himself would presumably have held of, um, but also one that others uh, often quote. And that is probably a very strong uh, support for this thesis. There is another one. Strauss himself actually alludes to this other one. Um, it is... Uh, trying to remember exactly, I think it's in, yeah, in Chafav. Yeah, that's right. Se section two, Perak Chafav, 26. There's a very important piece here. Madras, he quotes from Rebeleza Agadol, the Perakator Rebeleza. Basically, he, he deals with it earlier in, in the guide as well. Earlier on, when the Rambam talks about, the Rambam has basically a disproportionate amount of everything the Rambam interprets, both in the Mishneh Torah and the guide, and and actually other, and, and uh, even in Perusha Mishnah to some degree. It relates to four episodes. One is the ladder in Yaakov's dream. Two of them are to do with Moshe Rabbeinu, chapter 24 and chapter 33 of, of, of Shemot, of, of Exodus. Chapter, I'll come back to chapter 24 soon. And then the Nevoah, the prophecies of Yechazkel and the other Ma'asemer Kavah uh, prophecies. But the chapter 24 of Shemot is, uh, is when Moshe Rabbeinu goes up the mountain. And uh, it's, it's given in the Torah after the account of Sinai. Moshe goes up the mountain and the Rambam's terminology going up means may, may include also physically going up, but it also means conceptually going up. All Bnei, they were all invited up, but only Moshe Rabbeinu really got up the mountain. And then it talks at the end of that little episode uh, with the elites of the Jewish people, God didn't send out his hand, which implies as the Medrash and, and, and the Rambam and, and Rashi and everyone learns that um, they should have been punished. So they looked at the God of Israel, they said, they see they, they see it looks like the kind of, in the Rambam's understanding, this, this translucent or transparent um, thing. They looked at the God of Israel, and they ate and they drank. And the Rambam actually in many places interprets bits and eventually interprets the whole story. And what, what he says is, what, essentially what he says is that the elites of the Bnei Israel were eating and drinking, meaning they were too physical when they were trying to grasp and study God. And they confused God for this chomerishon, um, this kind of first matter. That's a contradiction because later in the guide, he says it can actually refer to something much, much higher up than the first matter. But whatever it is, it's not God himself. And they confused God with something near the core of creation. They, they made the mistake, possibly very similar, by the way, to, to what he might think Aristotle's error is. But very subtle one that your philosophical mind won't be able to pick up on the fact you're doing, but you can, you can when you think very, very deeply, if you're not prepared sufficiently, if you're not uh, removed your own physical nuss, which I'll come back to, uh, why that should make any difference, then you can make an error thinking you're thinking about God when actually you're thinking about something at the core of creation instead. 
And then he says, I thought about this idea thanks to something in the Pirkei of Eliezer, which I'll discuss later on. And that discussion takes place in section two, chapter 26. And he says something unbelievable. He quotes this Medrash of Pirkei of Eliezer, and he says, um, he says, I've never seen anything so shocking, you know, from anybody who follows Torah Moshe Rabbeinu. He says things, Shemali Shanali, listen to his language. How was the heaven created? From the light of a Kodesh Baruch's dress, clothing. He stretched out like some kind of garment. They were stretched and went, like the Pasuk says, he stretches it out. Okay. So there you go. The verse is telling you, and the Prikad of is telling you, there's some kind of material from which God expands and builds out the heavens. And then he says, How did earth come into being? From this snow thing, something white under the throne of, of glory. Now you have to go through all the Rambam's other chapters and work out what each of these words actually means, but we're not going to do that now. Lakach actually throws it out. This is the text said over there. If only I could know. Those of you who know the Rambam's language will know this is such a telling phrase. If only I could know what this Chacham is thinking. Is this Chacham telling us that there wasn't a creation something from nothing? Is he saying there's always been some kind of matter going around forever? And that's as he then he goes on and says something else. But in that little line, it sounds like he's saying, did did Pirkei just tell us that there wasn't a creation? Right. The Rambam does that at least one other place, by the way. This is the main one, but there is at least one other place like that where he kind of seems to throw out a line that would be more beneficial if you would support the position of the eternity of the universe, right? Does it in the logic and near the beginning of the, of the second section as well, where he says there's, there's, you know, there's always, if you believe something has an ultimate cause, you've got to ask, so why didn't it cause its, its effect much earlier? And you've got to come up with some kind of justification. Um, and if you believe in the cause was, was something from nothing, then you've got to really explain it. Now, those are two, two of the places, probably the two most prominent. This is the most prominent. But Rambam sounds like he's exploring this possibility. Now, if you put all this together, you have a little case going on saying, in one large parts of the guide, he says, I'm not really going along with this eternity of the universe. But I'll just drop you a little hint where you're not expecting it and then move on. And the masses won't notice I just dropped a little contradiction in there. And I want the experts to realize that I did that little contradiction. And I've told you elsewhere, this is a very important chapter. So I'm hinting to you that I really believe in the eternity of the universe. That is, and, and, our, and, all the, and therefore everything else, which I contradict everyone else and say, that was Aristotle's view, but we don't hold of it. Listen carefully and now take this, reapply it. And everything I tell you, I don't believe, I really do believe. Strauss actually says the more the Rambam says he, something isn't true is the greatest proof that he thinks it is true. That's how radical he goes. Uh, anyway, it's not an impossible position, and certainly these are, are tantalizing views. I want to just take it a little bit, drop more radically, because there is an even more radical position, which I told you. And, and here there was an essay by a professor called Warren Harvey, uh, who was in the Hebrew Department of Jewish Thought. And he has, he actually says as follows. Again, I'm not going to dwell too long on it, I, um, but he actually wants to take the position. Um, let me just find, I had it written out of this. Take the position that there's a hint in the guide the Rambam goes even further than that. What is the hint in the guide? So, um, 
Okay, if you take the text the way we have it now, which is the text that in the Pines edition, it's the text in the um, Kapach edition is very similar. I'm going to read you the English translation. I often think with the Murrah, although uh, Kapach's uh, translation is, is not, not me being a perfect Arabic speaker, but uh, within academia, by the way, it was largely ignored for many years. Today, it's been treated a little bit more seriously. And it is, from what I understand from people who speak Arabic, and, and it's actually a brilliant... Uh, uh, anyway, for be that, it doesn't need my haskama, but it, but anyway, so you can read it there, read it there, but but the Pines translation Arabic is also supposed to be pretty good. So I'll read it to you. This is uh, as follows. The text here says that this is right at the end. It's right at the end of um, chapter. Uh, one second. It's right at the end of, I've just momentarily forgotten where it is in the book. I'm going to read the quote anyway. Uh, it's right at the end of chapter 20-something. Let me have a look if I can just quickly find it. It's, it's in the chapter where he basically talks to Yosef ben Yoda, the person he's writing this text to, and he tells him that he should realize that Aristotle didn't get everything right about uh, the cosmos. Um, i trying to think one second. I have in my head. Okay, it escapes me just for this second. Um, Oh, very annoying to... Okay, whatever. Okay, I'll come back to me. But uh, either way, um, I know where it is. I know exactly where it is. Hoftalat. Good. Okay, fine. It's, it's section two, chapter 24. Here it is. Okay, so I'm going to read you the English translation of it. it it's almost, with the exception of one word, the Pines translation is identical to the Kapok translation. That word I don't think is critically significant. So I'll read you the Pines translation here, um, in, in the actual article. Okay, for it is impossible for us to accede to the points starting from which Conclusions may be drawn about the heavens. Heavens means, it's the English translation of, of the Galgalium, of the outer spheres. The Aristotelian cosmological model, in fact, there's, there were debates between the different thinkers. Al-Farabi and Averroes had slightly different models, but what they all have in common is the earth is in between four different layers, each of which is dominated or, or, uh, by one of the elements, earth, water, air, fire, as usual, order. And above them are these Galgalium, these, these orbital forces, um, these wheels, of which you can identify nine, but they subdivide into five, and the Rambam thinks really four um, of these Galgalim uh, that drive and their motion ultimately generates everything below, and uh, in, in and they're driven by Sechalim Nivdalim by these they, they themselves have consciousness, they're not the same matter as, as things below, and their consciousness draws to these active intellects, these active intellects power them. And that's the basic structure. Um, there are subtleties within all of that, but he says. In truth, when you look at the Aristotelian picture of the world, and then you look at the Ptolemaic epicycles, they don't really work together. And he sort of expresses a certain skepticism about the Aristotelian position. Um, he says as follows. He says, for it's impossible for us to accede to the points um, starting from which conclusions may be drawn about the heavens, for the latter are too far away from us and too high in place in rank. In other words, the human brain can't easily grasp these things. They're not as observable as things going on on Earth. And even the general, the word even is the pines of this, the general conclusion that may be drawn from them, namely that they prove the existence of their mover, in the pines translation, is a matter the knowledge of which cannot be reached by human intellect. That in isolation sounds like what he's saying is, when I gave you all these chapters showing how from the Galgalim we can get the proof of a creator, truth is, since we can't really know that much about these Galgalim, maybe we can't know anything about whether there even is a creator. If you've ever read Strauss' introduction to the guide, I recommend, if you haven't noticed that he says the exact same thing, which is very possible to not notice, just go back now and reread 
uh, the introduction, more or less the second last page of the introduction to the Pines, that you'll see that once you realize that this is the issue, you'll see he's basically saying it more or less black on white. Um, and, uh, and that's very much his position too, but he says it's also in his own esoteric, uh, esoteric way. Um, now, why do scholars not accept this? Why do many scholars not accept this particular? I mean, this particular thing is, 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 is much more rare for scholars to, to accept it. So there's a very interesting paper by someone called Joel Kramer. Joel Kramer was a professor at Chicago, um, actually an, an Arab speaking, uh, yeah, very high. He, he makes a number of points on this. First is that, uh, is that it's not exactly a perfect translation anyway, but it's very famous. Ibn Tiban, Shmuel Ibn Tiban wrote the first translation of the guide actually was in correspondence with the Rambam. And in the manuscript, he himself has a note where he believes the text here is mistaken, um, which is interesting. Now, usually he believes mistaken. There were corruptions in the text by the time they got to him. And some of them we know he wrote to the Rambam and usually the Rambam confirmed he was right. Here we don't have the letters between him and the Rambam as to whether he had, when he actually asked that to the Rambam and what the Rambam replied. But it's it, when Ibn Tibon writes that, there's good reason to think that. And the truth is it, it's, it's not just out of context. It, just with a few extra Arabic words, it makes so much more sense. Whereas he basically says, apart from the proof of the creator, there's not much else we can know. The reason that makes much more sense is not the idea of, because he says things elsewhere that are different, that's Kramer's argument. We could always say, yeah, but here's his little hint. It's that if you look at his argument, they're very rigorous, right? Very well-structured, very much fitted in with the views of Al-Farabi and everybody else really at the time, perhaps just add a little more rigor to some of the premises and some of the deductions, but, uh, anyone in his time would have found it impossible to see any good reason why you don't need to know anything about the spheres at all, except they move in some kind of circular motion and his views about um, agency and causation, which were the standard views of every philosopher at the time, pretty much who, who in the Western Islamic world to uh, the, all the deduction just flow. There's nothing you need to know. It doesn't matter whether Ptolemaic epicycles or whether it's Bettini, they don't seem to have any impact on the argument at all. So it'd be very bizarre if him thinking that we don't know everything about exactly how uh, has any impact on, on this argument. Um, so that's kind of, so the more extreme position is less Halbel. But the more, the more uh, kind of the view that maybe there was a hidden Aristotelianism is also one that's hotly debated. And I'm gonna show you some of the counter arguments. And then I want to tell you something which some of you may find very surprising. And then I'd like to get to a non-Aristotelian non position. I, I don't know if I'm going to get it all done in one night, but this, it's such a big topic. But let, let's see. So first of all, what, what are the questions that scholars, I'm talking both in secular and religious terms, who have a more conservative view of the Mora uh, ask on this view, right? They obviously owe an explanation as to what it is the Rambam really is hiding. And they owe an explanation to those two or three places where the Rambam sounds like he is, um, hinting at the possibility of, of an eternal universe. Um, there are some explanation for that. That's certainly the case. They would counter argue a few things. First of all, if Rambam really is going to efforts to hide his views, then why give so much ground to Aristotle as he clearly does? Like, couldn't he have taken more conservative positions? Like, that would have been more mass friendly and just kept dropping these hints that maybe Aristotle's right. Okay, that's actually a, a more debatable argument. But the biggest problem is, he's very consistent throughout all his writings as to exactly what he's going to hide and exactly why he needs to hide it. He must hide Sitre Torah. He's got to hide the secrets of Torah because the Gemara, the Mishnah says, in Dorishin, you do not teach the Maasebere, you don't teach the works of creation with more than one person. 
when you're setting up the mass position, this is necessarily unphilosophical, right? But Rambam, according to according to the interpreters, that the guide itself is um, is has esotericism, exotericism within it, then they're going to argue that even the philosophical position, which is necessarily philosophical, um, is going to also be uh, a trick. You know, that's kind of the 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 issue with with that with that problem. It's easy if you'd say the Mishnah Torah just contradicted the guide, but it doesn't. That's the problem. The Mishnah Torah is also uh, you could once you, if you read the guide esoterically, you could also argue the Mishnah Torah is esoteric. And in fact, those who banned the guide famously banned Sefer Madah, right? He, he in Sefer Madah he says many of the things he says that sound quite radical. In the guide, he just doesn't elaborate onto the same degree, but they're all there. Not all, but most of them. Um, in fact, in one particular area, he's more radical earlier in life, namely the deny the, the limitation of miracle. In the guide, he gives more leeway for that than he does in his earlier works. Either way, either way. Um, one of the biggest problems is this, but all the way through, question interpretation, I'm a skeptic about Hashem's essence. Okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna talk a little more. I'm gonna try and come to the questions a bit later if that's okay. I'm sorry, I just wanna make sure that we cover the core material. I apologize to questions that are coming up now. Um, one of the, so he's got this all the way through, running from the Purusha Mishnah on, on, on Chagiga, through the Mishnah Torah in the second chapter and in the fourth chapter in several places, through the guide in the introduction, through the introduction to the third section. And when he gets to the Parakim, Aleph design one to seven of the third section, everything he writes, he writes esoterically. There he's literally interpreting or taking you through the chapter one of Yechazkel and comparing it to chapter 10 of Yechazkel and, and Yeshayahu, the three Maaseh Merkava chapters. And there you absolutely see, I mean, he's hiding. Just look at, if you just want to see a hidden chapter in the guide, just read chapter seven of section three. It's the best example of what you call teaching with Rashi Prakim, of teaching with chapter headings, but making sure you don't uh, talk about the subject matter. And only a student who really knows what's going on, Chacham, maybe in a Midato, will have a clue what's going on there. And you have to work really, 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 really hard to even think you've quite understood what he's going on about. And very often your eyes just pop open, you go, oh my goodness. When I compare that chapter to that chapter and that chapter to that chapter, I suddenly, ah, whoa, that's what the Ram I'm saying. And, and, you know, and that's, um, that's, the, the, uh, that's what he's hiding. And actually, my recommendation, I don't know if you've came to the same conclusion, is it's worth reading Moret through once, and then the second time one reads it through, in my, my humble, humble essay, because I, I don't mean that's not false humility. I'm not a particularly massive, I'm not a particularly massive Maimonidean scholar, but it seems to me that if one, the second time round studies those seven chapters together with the Pesukim, rate, writes down all the questions you can think of and all the mysteries, and then read the guide again from beginning to end, taking note of everything. And by the way, Kapach's footnotes are gold for this. So are some of the classical commentators as well. But I think, He's got the benefit of sweep of all of history, putting it together, and then keeping it. Then you come up with some gems. It's, it's so beautiful. Um, anyway, that's. But but the point is that the Rambo's told us everything he's hiding, and he's told us exactly why he's got to hide it, and exactly why he's got to make sure the masses don't understand what he's saying. He's very very consistent in why he has to make sure the masses don't understand this, and why he's going to have to use contradictions. Therefore, and that's all the way through all his works. So what what? And it's because. I'll explain it a little bit soon, but roughly because when you're trying to grasp God, it is so easy to get it wrong. In fact, if you're not very trained, and even if you're very philosophically trained, but you haven't shed enormous amounts of physicality, anger, all these things from you, necessarily you're going to be projecting things onto God that aren't there. It doesn't matter how brilliant you are and how deeply you've gone, you're still going to get it wrong, and perhaps even dangerously so. This is consistent not with absolutely everywhere. Um, and so now an esotericist is going to have to say, well, that's not really what he's hiding. He's actually hiding something totally different. The Sitre Torah in the Moren of Uchim 
are Aristotelianism. So what were the situator in his earlier works that he said he's going to eventually write a work about? To was, he, was that also Aristotle all the way back then when he wrote Mishneh Torah, when he wrote the Purusha Mishnayot? That would be very radical. That would mean if probably his father had been Aristotelian. I mean, this would be stuff that would be would be very, very difficult to fathom. I mean, his entire life was playing a lie. He was basically taking the Gemara and Chagiga, which presumably he didn't think were the rabbis secretly hiding Aristotelianism, although maybe he'd say that too. Sitre Torah is not that difficult to grasp. It's they undermine the whole of faith. And the, the Gemara has secretly been hiding a code that it doesn't believe in things. It would be a very, very radical position to take. And I think that's why, and it's interesting, I don't know what happened in the year 2005, but around about that year, there was a bit of a move in, this, in the academic community away from this, not a bit of a move. I, I would say today, there's quite, not that the, the esoteric view isn't held of in the academic community, but it's, I'll, I'll give you a quote, it's actually an interesting quote that was written in 2017. The Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, by the way, is one of the best resources for learning anything philosophical um, on the web uh, that's open to the masses. And the article on Maimonides, which is written by Kenneth Seaskin. He, he wrote uh, the Cambridge, he's basically the editor of the Cambridge Companion um, in 2005. And he wrote the following line, which I think is an accurate, my understanding, I'm not a full-time scholar in this area, but it is that of late, the esotericist reading appears to be losing favor. I think that's a fair, and for largely for reasons I've articulated, which doesn't mean it doesn't have grounds. You know, I'm not going to be one of these that stands up, that's it, it's gone, you know. No, there's definitely serious people who hold of it, very serious people. But I think this sort of consideration I've raised here are the sorts of things that make people uh, skeptical of that really is plausible. That's what the round wants to do. It's not impossible, but it, 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 it requires a certain leap of credulity that's not impossible, but difficult to believe. There are other, other questions as well. For example, the Rambam is very emphatic that, um, that negation, there's levels of negation. He asked if all you have to do is negate the attributes of God. So what was so special about what Moshe or Shlomo Melech had? And he has a very famous, important line uh, where he says around about 59 or somewhere, where he says, there's actually levels of negation. And no matter how far you've negated, you can negate more. Now, the Aristotelian model of God is not like that. You just negate everything and you're left with an inert God, at least the way Aristotle was generally understood. So, um, so therefore, uh, that would, that, 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 this whole, and he has quite a lot of focus on how you've got to spend your basic life constantly getting deeper and then negating a bit more deeper. That doesn't work with the Aristotelian model. Um, neither does, you know, for example, he writes in around one of the 30s, I think around 33, 34, somewhere, I think that he says that, you know, if, if you negate wrongly, you'll end up just taking more or less rip, stripping the concept of God of much meaning. That also doesn't make sense if he has the Aristotelian position and so on. So, so there's a lot of reasons to question this. Now, um, what I want to drop in right now, uh, and this might come as many of you may know this or many of you may not know this, I'm going to come back to it, but Strauss did not invent this way of learning the Rambam. It's very likely that Ibn Tibon himself did. Um, I'm going to come back to that one because it will play out very majorly. I know, I know a theme that's, that's uh, many people are concerned with very often is the whole Maimonidean controversies. I want to tell you what I'm going to argue later on is that the radical view of the Rambam was actually very mainstream amongst a lot of the Catalonian and Provence supporters of the Rambam. Very mainstream. I'm going to come back to the history of that soon. And I think that had a very, very big impact on the reception of the Rambam in that area. Um, during the, the, let's say, 12, 30s, 40s, particularly the year of the first, most vicious controversy in the book burning and so on. 
Um, and without that interpretation, I'm not saying there wouldn't have been a controversy, uh, but it certainly played an outsized role in the controversy. But I'm going to come back to that. I uh, just wanted to drop that little gem in there, uh, a little hypothesis, which we will come back and re-explore. Let me talk for a little bit, for a few minutes, as to what it is that, uh, that, uh, that Rambam, I think, a sort of some direction to, to understanding these things. First of all, there's a really fascinating view that has begun to become also uh, spoken about more and more in academia. And that is the view that the, the Rambam is broadly speaking, not Aristotelian, or, or, or sorry, not more Aristotelian than he sounds like he is, but that he drops in some of these little chapters because he's, I don't wanna use the word hedging, but not a million miles away from hedging. Um, there's a very, very interesting article. Uh, let me see if I can find it. I've got a whole pile of them somewhere here. So I should be more organized about myself uh, by a Barry Lamb professor called Tzvi Langerman, um, who basically points out what I said earlier, that the Rambam seems to soften his hard position that, that leaves less room for miracle earlier in life and throughout the guide equi seems to equivocate. And his hypothesis is that the, that the Rambam is offering opportunity for more than one possibility. This is a view, um, I think her name is Sarah Klein Braslavi, a very, very big Rambam expert, basically articulates a woman called uh, Dr. Rifka Canella um, has a very, very nice essay on this. Talking about Maasemer Kava because a lot of the interpreters of the Rambam think his Maasemer Kava was very physics, was basically Aristotelian physics and a very little bit of metaphysics, but not very deep at all. Uh, Ibn Tibon interpreted the Rambam that way. The Abar Benel interpreted the Rambam that way, and they both critiqued the Rambam for going like too radical on that. So she has a very. All of these thinkers have a very interesting view. I, I would say again, I'm not trying not to oversimplify. It's like this: the Rambam basically, and and if you listen carefully, I think Rambam more or less says this. Says. It's possible Aristotle is right, but no argument currently around really forces his position. Aristotle himself didn't believe it was proven. Um, and therefore we don't have sufficient reason to try to completely reread the whole of Torah and completely redo the whole of Jewish theology. But, but it is possible someday someone will prove creation. And it is equally possible that somebody one day might prove that Aristotle is correct. Ibn Tibon felt that he'd done it, by the way. And, um, and if somebody were to prove Aristotle's correct, what's going to happen to the faith of the intelligentsia? So I want to drop you little hints along the way as to what you'll do if that ever turned out to be true. You might have a Pirkaj of Eliezer to rely on. It goes against all the other Midrashim. But if you've got one Midrash to rely on, that, that might help you. You know, there is a philosophical question that you could then lean on and build something out of. And that's more or less explains why he, he pretty much says this position quite clearly, actually. If Rambam would, if Aristotle were to prove to us the Kadmut is true, then we will reinterpret Breshit. We'll, we'll reinterpret those Pesukim. In other words, he is preparing the reader for that possibility that could happen. So the esotericists will say that's because he really believes it. But I think, because uh, there's a better reading of what he's hiding, I think the more plausible reading is a bit more base value, but subtle, where he is being subtle about it, it's true. But he's saying, and, and there's another reason why he would say it, and that is he knows very well that for a lot of his readers, anything less than a full-blown Aristotelianism is naive and unsophisticated. And he wants to keep the door of faith open to them. Right? If you know what's going on at that time, the history of the time, the intelligentsia very often looked down at the masses, um, even before the, the, uh, the, the issues of, of when the, the kind of the intelligentsia of, of, uh, of Safarid, of Andalus, 
some of them ended up meeting, uh, popping in to, not popping in, crossing the border into the Ashkenazi lands in Provence, in Catalonia and so on, and, and, and the culture clashes there where there certainly was this looking down upon the ignorant barbarians or, or wonderful Talmudists who don't understand philosophy and so on. But even before then already was in the elite circles where Jews and Muslims mixed, um, was this kind of nudge, nudge, wink, wink, the masses think in these naive ways, we understand sophisticated. I, I think, I don't know if I Maybe you come across Joshua Berman wrote a book recently, a Bible scholar in Bailan uh, called Annie Mamin, where the first half of the book is casting doubt on, on biblical criticism. And the second half of the book is almost creating theological space. Should anybody want to give ground to some of the Bible critics? And, and I believe that what he's doing is very similar to what, what on this view the Rambam's doing, which is personally, he thinks that Bible criticism is incorrect. But one day somebody may prove it and there may be people out there who are convinced by the arguments so let's not close the door on space for you within religious theology you can ask joshua berman yourself if you think that's what he he he, he believes and i'm not speaking on his behalf but i'm giving you that kind of you could imagine in the right intellectual thought climate the rambam is saying what i think is true and i'll show you why i don't think aristotle's done the work you guys think he's done um and al-farabi actually attacks him for no, al-farabi ibn tibon actually says he thinks the rambam was too kind of religious and traditional about this um although i'll come back to ibn tibon's understanding of rambam soon uh, but uh, but I'll leave you little hints along the way of um, were you, which he says quite clearly, Aristotle was someone to come along for with a proof for Aristotle, which the Rambam's logical arguments seem to, at this stage, there isn't one. I think the Rambam was really convinced of that. Um, but it doesn't mean there won't be one tomorrow. And I'll leave this world and I can and I could do it. But I'm not going to do it for you because it's not yet the situation. I don't want to make the equal version, which is why the Rambam doesn't. Um, He's creating a space to survive the continuity of the law. Yes, that I think would be a very good, a very good way of saying that. Yes, on this view. And this is a view which is gaining traction in academic circles, as far as I understand. I'm not a professional academic, so it seems to me that from the outside and so on. I, I, did I tell you, I just want to quote for full disclosure, I quote Arifa Canella. Did I tell you, I don't know what I mentioned in past, she's my aunt, so I'm a bit biased. But, um, but uh, I think, uh, uh, but despite that, I think that's an incredibly strong reading of, of the guide. Um, anyway, so what is it he's hiding? I think the answer is this, and, and uh, I think if you read the, the Kapach footnotes, especially very, very subtle, beautiful ones, he has a few places in those, those critical seven chapters where he takes issue with the Ibn Tibon translation. I'm not gonna go through now, largely because the Rambam himself would be upset with me if I would. Uh, and also because, um, because uh, we're just very short on time. But essentially that the thesis the Rambam seems to develop is this. The problem we have when we approach God is a problem that he already articulates right at the beginning of the guide. One of the most important chapters of the guide, some of the most important ones are right at the beginning. The second chapter, when he talks about the Chetad Amarishan, the sin of Adam. And in that chapter, he says, essentially, the sin of Adam was the movement away from a world where man could perceive in the full Seichel of the Tselemen of Kim, if you like, perceive Emet Vashaka, reality and illusion, truth and falsehood, right and wrong. And instead adopt what we might call in contemporary language a subjective view of tovara. Tovara are feelings, right? In other words, I'll, their language, their, their terms, we use them for ethics, but they're borrowed from aesthetics, essentially. In fact, it's an interesting insight. The Rambam doesn't say this, but it, it's totally fits with everything. He says the entire vocabulary, certainly in English, and I'm sure it's true in most, if not all, languages of ethics is completely borrowed from aesthetics. So we would say sight, sound, smell, taste is good, beautiful, wonderful, or amazing. And we'll say an act of self-sacrificing, saving someone's life is good, beautiful, wonderful, or amazing. Conversely, a sight, sound, smell, taste that's negative, we'd say is bad, disgusting, horrible, or revolting. And a mass rape or murder, we'd say is bad, disgusting, horrible, or revolting. 
In other words, we buy, because when we say the food tastes good, we mean it makes us feel good. We see the world as the Nachash says, right, your eyes will be opened. Your eyes will be opened. You'll be like gods, knowing good and bad. You'll know reality by how it feels to you. No longer reality the way it really is. And that creates the end on the way back to Derech Etzchayim, the way of the tree of life, which is to access that tree of life, you're going to have to struggle with the fact that we always see reality as self-projection. And in chapter five of the opening of the guide, he says that was the mistake of that Tzile Bnei Yisrael in chapter 24 of Shemot. What do they do? Because they still had some physicality, when they looked and tried to understand, grasp God, they made a mistake. They grasped some of the deep um, form of the inner structure of reality, if we borrow, accept the contradiction from later on. Uh, or they borrowed something very deep and, and they confused it with God himself. And so they came up with, in other words, the philosophical brain by itself can only take you so far. But the reason, and when he talks about the things, the barriers to understanding this, ma this material, he lists five major barriers, right? Some of them are that people aren't philosophically trained. Some of them are the fact that it just, there's so much work you need to do. Uh, you know, it takes years and years of, of training of the mind to really do this correctly. But then he says, um, some have naturally bad midot. They just have bad natures, bad character traits. You need humility, you need patience, etc. And then he says, some are into physical temptations. Now, <laughs> if you're positive Aristotelian view, I promise you lots of people get the Aristotelian view who have very bad midot and have lots of physical temptations. It's not very, you know, it's sophisticated. The average mass person out there may not have been able to do it, but certainly there are plenty of thinkers in his time who would not have necessarily neatly fitted into those two areas. Um, but I think what the Rambam's telling you is, is you see you're always projecting yourself. And no matter how deep you're going, you're projecting yourself. By the way, here I want to tell you something. If you want to just give some, some very simple examples of how people, even who think uh, very monotheistically about God in, in ways the Rambam will be happy, project themselves. Just listen to lines like this. You'll hear them all the time. I don't get why God let X or Y or Z happen in the world, which nine times out of 10 means I don't want that to happen in the world. How come God's not listening to me? How come God doesn't think like I think? How come God doesn't care about what I care about? Right, it's a very subtle but very deep projection of self. Another one you'll sometimes hear, um, maybe perhaps in people who have struggled with certain religious commitments, you'll hear, but it's the same errana, right? Is I get why God would care about don't kill and don't steal, but why would he care about whether I flick a light on or off on Shabbat or something? Right, it's, it's the same thing, what people are really saying. I mean, why should an infinite being care about what any being does on the edge of some planet in the middle of nowhere in the universe exactly? Right? You could ask why does God care if we kill or steal? Yeah. But the point is that what I'm saying is I care about killing and stealing. So God should care about that. I don't care about lights flicking on and off. So God shouldn't care about that. There's a lot of ways in which we do this. But one of the most of all is I think Aristotle, or at least if you take the method of negation like this, you negate all properties and you come up with an inert God. That's also a form of self-projection. Because if God is like me and you were to strip away from me all attributes, I'd be left with nothing but inert being unconscious being but that makes a huge assumption that god is like us such that if you strip things away you'll be left with nothing that's also a projection of self you've got to negate that view too and that's why shlomo melech and moshe rabbeinu spent their life getting deeper and deeper and according to the rambam moshe rabbeinu always knew where the limit of his ability to grasp ended where at this point self-projection will come in on a very subtle level and it was the fact that he didn't look 
that let him have the schut that later on, the only person about whom we could say, Tumunat Hashem Yabit, right? Who could actually grasp, come the close, Panim El Panim, because he knew exactly where not to go, right? At every point he knew, now I'm at the edge of my refinement. If I look any further, what I will see will be a projection of self. So philosophy can take you very, very deeply through. Philosophical training can take you very, very deeply through, but it can never take you all the way through. What you're grasping is beyond what the mind can grasp, but it can grasp, just not in ways that could be articulated into words, not in ways that could be put back into ordinary language and concepts. I'm gonna leave you with one final thought on this, and then I wanna say just a quick remark about the, 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 the controversy. If you look back at chapters one to seven, um, how the Rambam wrestles with the, or wants us to wrestle with, he doesn't seem to be wrestling at all, he's got it, uh, with the chapter at the beginning of Yechazka. He refers us back, or at least he hints back, and most commentators take us back, to chapters nine and 10 in section two of the guide. In section two of the guide, the Rambam says that Aristotle thought there was a certain amount of orbits. He thinks Aristotle didn't have the knowledge we had in the days of the Rambam and that really you can understand all the orbits as four. And then in chapter 10, the Rambam goes off in this seemingly strange non-Rambam-esque tangent where he talks about how brilliant it is that there's so many fours in creation, four elements and four orbits and four causal force and four this and four that and four the other. He just talks about how he had this wonderful thought thinking about all these fours. And in Yaakov's dream, there's four steps on the ladder and four angels. And even if there aren't four steps on the ladder, seven, but there's certainly four angels and each one occupies a third of the world. And, the other, and so he just goes on. And that's one of those very strange chapters when you're reading it. It's like, well, what? this doesn't feel like the rest of the character of the guide. So until, you, of course, you look at Mahas Semarakam, and I'm not going to, again, I'm not going to give more, any more Rashi Prakim than the Rambam does, but it's very obvious throughout Yechazkel chapter one, there's lots and lots and lots of number fours. Right. The only question is which one lines up with which. And Ibn Dibon has his explanation, and 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 uh, and others, Efodi and Shemtov, all the ancient uh, interpret ancient the early interpreters have their interpretations of this, and so on. I think of Kapach, if you read his 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 subtle critiques, that are brilliant. But here's what I think I can say, because the Rambam has a chapter on this. The, you see, the normal interpretation is the Chayot are the Galgalim. There's a reason the Galgalim, meaning the upper realms of the universe. And that leaves you a bit of an unsatisfactory thing because of the edge, when you get this rakia, that's kind of the outer Galgal. And when it has this image of, of the honor of God or the image of man on the throne, that has to be the Sechel Nivdal, the kind of angels or the abstract intellect, the active intellects. And that's all he saw. And as a Barbanel writes, that's it. For that, the rabbis have to say, Ein Dorishim. I mean, come on, you know, we have lots of people teaching physics that that's called Eidor, that's all you can come up with, Rambam. And even Ibn Tiban says that that's not good enough. You know, this is, this, this can't be it. There's got to be that the image includes something about God. I mean, come on, right? But remember, in the end of the second section of the guide, he tells you that when a prophet wants to look at an angel, he can't see an angel. An angel is a Sechel Nivdal. He has to see an image. And if you just take those two together, I'm not going to say anything more, much more about Maasemerkava because I'm not going to say more than the Rambam gives us in the hints, but well, there's one or two I'd love to. But in other words, if you're looking at Chayot, you can't see Chayot. So what image is presented? Galgalim. Let's suppose it's Galgalim. I'm not actually so convinced that is, and I don't think of Kapach thinks it is, but let's go along with that view. If it's as low as the Galgalim and no higher than that, right? What's it telling you? 
he's telling you the best way to represent these malachim sitting in this chayot is by showing the galgalim. In other words, the galgalim and the four galgalim in the physical universe are expressions and manifestations of the four chayot. In other words, the Rambam is building this structure of four so that every four you see is a projection of a level above. And you start by studying physics. And if you get into Aristotle's metaphysics, you realize how you learn metaphysics, not by observation, because we can't really observe what's going on, although we can use a little bit of observation, but by speculation as to the relationship between causes and effects. So what must be the causal structure that underlies this effect? And then you start to go deeper than that. And then you start to go deeper than that. And then you start to go deeper than that. But you're always dealing with fours, just more and more and more abstract until you go deeper than that, deeper than that, deeper than that. And if you look at all the chapters of the guide, you might notice other chapters that to do with the number four as well. But the point is that we are starting from somewhere as we study God. And obviously the root of all of this is, is an emanation of the first cause. And you're climbing the ladder and you've got to know when to stop. And then you've got to know when you're ready to abstract further, you go further, deeper. And then you've got to go, to, you go deeper and you go deeper and you go deeper. And the Navi is setting us some of the steps on the ladder as to how to do some of that work. Um, and uh, I think I'm out of time. Do I have five more minutes, you know? Yeah, okay. Because what I'd like to come back to, why do we assume? Okay, I'll try and deal with the questions soon, okay? Um, so now, the challenge, however, is that although Ibn Tibon uh, criticizes the Rambam, and Ibn Tibon himself, by the way, who's the translator of the Rambam, about whom the Rambam says he understood my work, and Ibn Tibon is, is a later, he was young at the time of the Rambam died, but he was already working on this translation. And Ibn Tibon himself was a committed Averroesian fellow, Ibn Rushd, he was a follower of Ibn Rushd. In fact, almost all of the four classical commentaries on the guide, by which I mean, uh, um, um, Caspi, Rav Yosef Caspi, and um, and uh, Rav Moshe Narvani, and uh, and um, Rav Shemtov, all of these pretty much seem to take the. They themselves were mostly um, followers of Ibn Rushd. The actual um, Rav Moshe Narvani himself, I think, is the one who does who, it's, uh, who does the translation work. Actually, translates one of one of uh, Ibn Rushd's works, Averroes's works, into. Uh, into um, Hebrew and introduced it to the Jewish community exactly at the time of the major controversy, which I think was was in Montpelier, which is of course exactly where the whole thing, where the book burnings then took place. Um, but basically speaking, just going to share a little note that I wanted to make for myself just to make sure I cover this accurately. But essentially speaking, um, it was a, it was anyway. It, it's uh, it is. Yeah, Roshemtov is, is the one was the one in Montpellier did the translation. But they they now Ibn Tibon has a beautiful light way, but he criticized the Rambam for being not Aristotelian enough. And he says the Rambam had this, except in, in the Masemar Kavawa, he thinks he was a bit too. But he has this amazing line, which he uses twice in his writings after criticizing the Rambam for not being Aristotelian enough. He himself was an Aristotelian, um, who says, Zer al pi pshuto. He says it in his Pirish on Kohelet of which we have many of the documents, and he says it on the Ma'amari Kavuha Mayim. In both of these, he hints to the possibility that maybe there's another reading of the Rambam in which he really was an Aristotelian. Now, what we realize going on because of him, right, and because of Rav Yitzhak Shemtov, who was alive at the actual battle, when the battle reaches most intense, and was active in Montpelier, 
and was a committed Averroesian or Averroian uh, philosopher himself, very much so, and often seems to interpret the Rambam that way, is that a very live view amongst this intelligentsia and elite was, together with their Muslim uh, friends, was that we'd come on. Aristotle is the way sophisticated people think, right? That must, and sometimes they thought the Rambam did think that, and sometimes they thought he might have thought that, and, and, and so on. And as well as the fact that, you know, so they were pushing things much further than the Rambam himself was going. Yeah, Avarice, I think you're right, probably right. <laughs> okay, thank you. <laughs> um, but where, where, wherever they were going, um, this was a view that was being widely propagated in the name of the Rambam. And interestingly enough, in, in one of the attacks, in many of the attacks on these Maimonideans, uh, was even the argument that they should never have translated the works of the Rambam. They were meant to be clearly, for, which is clearly not true. Rambam was quite happy they were translating it, but also that they're mistranslated. Now, a lot of that was because by that phase, the Rambam's honor was too well established for anyone to challenge it. But the, I think there's no question that the fact that there was a widespread Aristotelian view in many of the early commentary commentators or the, the Rambam, or, there was almost, I think, an embarrassment that Rambam didn't go as far as Aristotelian position. But it, since he was the closest anybody came and had such authority, um, it kind of became surely Rambam really was. And if he wasn't quite, he, you know, he might have been type of thing. And that was all that people were seeing in his great defender's name. The really Rambam held there was no creation. And along with that, a lot of these people going along with, and God doesn't really intervene in the world. And this doesn't really happen. So you see the fuel to the fire that that made for the uh, Maimonidean controversy. I think that's really, really important element to add to this uh, understanding of what was going on. I think it's often presented as if it was kind of, you know, the philosophy was too much for these people. And I'm not sure if that's a very accurate portrayal um, of what's going on. Although it's very hard to work out because we only have about uh, 15 or 20 papers from the time um, and letters. So we've got to try and do all the deduction work, but there is almost no question that was a I was going to say burning issue, but hey, whatever. But uh, <laughs> excuse the pun. But um, that's going on over there. Now, the last thing I want to say by way of, by the way, Rav Moshe Ibn Tibon, who was a son of, uh, of Rav uh, Shmuel Ibn Tibon, took a much more conservative interpretation of the Rambam, which is possible Rav Shmuel himself did. There's only two hints that Rav Shmuel thought differently. Um, and obviously, Rabbi Avraham ben Arambam himself, uh, there's no hint anywhere that he thought his father was really an Aristotelian. Uh, not even a subtle hint for somebody somewhere in a private letter. He certainly took a more conservative interpretation of the Rambam, which over time became the dominant uh, view. Although, because these commentaries existed and were learnt with the Murrah, they were always around. Um, Rav Kapach, I think, subtly shows where he disagrees with them in the commentaries. The final thing I'll just say by way of, of kind of remarks on, on this particular topic is I do think once we understand the Rambam, as using the projection model of deepening our understanding of reality, which coupled with um, understanding where to do negation and where we are self-projecting, actually makes the Rambam open to what one might call a mystical interpretation, by which I don't mean the Rambam had Kabbalah. It's very, very difficult to argue that anyone in the Andalusian world had Kabbalah. It even sounds in the Gomorrah like wh whatever knowledge was held was lost in Yeshiva Pumbadisa in the days of the, uh, of the Amorayim. So if there was any such knowledge, it might have gone out from Eretz Yisrael in a different direction. It certainly didn't go through the Maghrib and Andalus, at least according to any evidence that we have um, in any writings of anybody around there, I think is fair to say. There are, you know, people who seem to think differently. But, but the Rambam, apart from what he writes in Mishnah Torah about the love of God, 
and how this coming close to God in mind builds a deep love of God and you do it through understanding the natural world. I think he really thinks that you can actually have not a grasp of God, but a grasp of God's expression, but because everything in the world is ultimately God's expression, but you've got to learn how to do it very, very deeply through methodical evaluation of what have I got so far? That's not God, but it's an expression of God. It's the kavod, if you like, maybe, maybe not even that high. But now how can I go deeper? Am I ready to go deeper? Am I self-projecting or am I able to negate and be a little closer and then a little closer and then a little closer? So the intellect can each base do some work. The purity of the self will then either see or not see. And depending on how self-aware one is, will be on how deep and how deep and how deep one can go. But what I will say is, and I hope you don't shoot me down for this, is that's not a million miles away from what, if you like, the more Maimonidean interpretations of filtering of what the Mukubalim are doing. Um, I'm not going to say there isn't a fierce clash to be had, but later on in Spain, when a lot of the great uh, Mukubalim tried to filter the Kabbalistic thing through the prison of the Rambam, I don't think they had no grounds to work on. I'm not saying there weren't exaggerations here and there, but the idea that we can be deepening and deepening and deepening and via whatever it is, getting closer and closer and closer, is not the same as Kabbalah, but it's not a million miles away either. Um, and I actually think that it can be one of the most powerful. I think there's such a room to study, especially if you want to take an Andalusian tradition, there can be no greater thing than spending our lives studying chapters one to seven of the third section of the guide and then going back and reading the whole guide as setting up those chapters and then climbing the ladder a little bit higher and coming down. And what a joyful, spiritual, mystical, experience that can be as each of us tries to climb the ladder a little bit higher. Uh, with that, I will um, finish my remarks and open for questions. I don't know, Sina, do you want me to take the ones that are in the wow. chat? Wow, yeah, yeah, Rav, that was, uh, I mean, I'm rarely speechless. I think the people in the group know uh, how much I talk, um, but that was very, very, very enlightening. And it reminded me of the line from uh, Hacham Faor, where he says, beyond the cutting edge of reason lies a higher reality rational humanity can intuitively grasp but cannot articulate his uh, homo mysticus i think takes a very 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 similar position to this he's not the only one but i think it's a beautiful hundred percent exactly as you've said I, I really do feel that way uh, i think it'll be great to get to go through some of the questions if you have some time rav sure um, do you want to read out which ones you think uh, add, you know sure um so do 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 we've got one here from Gidon. Why do we assume the guide is the position of Harambam as opposed to a position paper written to a Talmud, the more yeshivish position? What evidence is there that Harambam actually believed anything in the Moreh that contradicts the Yat or Perusha Mishnayot? So it's a fair question. Um, I'm not so sure that there's a lot of major contradictions between the two. There are some here and there, and one has to work carefully at each one. But the, I think the major positions are already there. Remember, in, in the, if you read Hilchot Yisodei Torah, if you read them, you'll see already that he's saying a lot of the things that he ends up saying in the guides, right? The deanthropomorphization is, is, is already there. The idea that the Gargalim having consciousness in the Aristotelian model of the universe is absolutely there. The uh, um, slightly more Aristotelian virtue of the, the metaphysics and the consciousness of the Gargalim and the Sechalim Nivdalim and, and the Malachim and all this kind of stuff. It's all there, actually in chapters two, three, and four of, of Ilkhot Yisraeli So a lot of these things are already there. Uh, his interpretation of what Nebuah is, is there. 
um, his, his, his uh, view of the limitation on Nisimas, all these things are already there. So I don't think um, there's much sense in which his main position in the guide significantly contradicts things he says earlier. You maybe, I don't know, maybe give an example of what you're thinking of in the contradiction. Okay. He's written nothing specific. Okay, so I, I think that the people who think there's a contradiction are typically those who believe that in the esoteric view that Rambam was in the guide, he's really, of course, an Aristotelian. Um, <laughs> then everything contradicts everything he said earlier. So on that view, the end got to decide which is the authentic one. Um, but I think if, if we read the guides, like I was saying tonight, then there's, I'm not saying there's nothing that contradicts here and there, but okay, Rambam has through his life, he develops, uh, uh, you know, like in, in Halacha, he develops a less Gaonic view on a lot of issues as he moves on. There's a lot of things that change, but not massively, not more than any other brilliant Rishon or Acharon or anybody in, 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 in history, really, um, who does that. So I, I, on this reading, I think he's very, very, cons he's not a million percent, but very consistent with the broad thinking he has already in the Pirisha Mishnah and in the, in the Mishnah Torah as well. I'm not sure there's such enormous, again, there'll be nitpicks to, to be had. He actually slightly, as I said, loosens the possibility of Nisim over here and, and other things like that. But I think he's giving, what he's doing is he's giving a lot, lot more of the methodology and working that's necessary to read the Maisa Merkava here. That he doesn't do uh, in, those, uh, in those works, really. He just says that one day he'll write about it. I think the purported and alleged, those who say there was a Rambam and a Maimonides and which one's the true one, are actually assuming a Straussian position of, okay. of, uh, of the Rambam. Uh, Rob, I had a question before sure. I go to Daniel's question, actually. Um, from what I've understood, um, from a lot of the things that I've read, very limited uh, on Harambam, um, you've got sensory perceptions that exist, and you then either filter them through imagination, or you filter them through rationality. Harambam held that you filter it through a rational thought processor, if you like, and then you go to the mystical realm, if you like, or the imaginative realm. Whereas the issue that he found was that some may actually filter it through their imagination and then do post-imaginative rationalization, which, yeah, that, that, that's, that's where one you get self-projection. That's one issue, but the, yeah, but the, the, see, one has to know what they're imagining and what they're not when they use imagination. That's very, very important for Rambam. Rambam will tell you that a Navi, you know, can sometimes see something where it's the word association that's the clue. And sometimes you'll see an image in Navua. Okay, Navua is more imagination oriented and needs the work of the rational, rational, you know, rational deductive process to work out what on earth is actually going on. But you get a, He says specifically about some of the words that in my Samar Kava, that they're there, they're, you know, the Navi sees some image where he's meant to work out what's the Hebrew word then play around with the letters and come up with the concept. So, mm. but the, the always, always the danger is that if you don't get the proper balance between working out what's, what's imagination, what's, 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 uh, what's the image that the mind has and what's the intellect, then you'll do what Tzile did. And by the way, I'm not sure if he doesn't think that was Aristotle's error. You, you can right. easily confuse Kadmut this way. Again, he, he won't overtly attack on that level either, but between the lines, I'm not sure if that Tzile Ben isn't an excellent description in his view of even a brilliant thinker who, you know, you know, they're looking as far as the brain can go, but what you actually see is shaped by you. Yep. Thank you. Uh, Daniel Jonas has asked, all esotericisms are not equal. So why this idea of an esoteric position? My 
The one I'm talking about, which one was, which point of the talk was that, Anne? That was uh, more that when you were saying that there was a um, uh, uh, an academic position of esoteric, esotericism, and it seems it seems a bit of a stretch to say that all esotericism not can be grouped together in that kind of way. I'm not sure. I don't think. Well, what Stra you talking about what Strauss was saying? Um, it's what you said the academics were saying. Which are those different academics, different voices. There's, there's two esotericist claims of the Rambam. Number one, that he is really more Aristotelian than he said, and then a more extreme position, which is he wasn't really sure God existed. Mm. Now, Strauss is more controversial for saying that all writings pre 18th century, or, or many or most, or whatever exactly the number is, uh, are, have esotericism within them. Um, but, uh, that's, I'm not sure which one of those. Uh, We've got a question here, um, last question here from Kenneth. Question on the interpretation of Harambam as a skeptic about Hashem's existence. The language is clearly dealing with the point in epistemic terms about the limit of human comprehension. Yet this extreme interpretation shifts the conclusion to a metaphysical one about whether Hashem exists. Well, the, the point about a metaphysical one is all our metaphysical conclusions require an epistemological justification. Um, so if you've got, if, if you can establish the existence of something on the basis of an argument, and that argument requires on a certain epistemological uh, position, which then you feel is undermined, then you don't have a basis to reach the conclusion. Um, certainly in those days, it would not have been accepted just to say, and the Rambam doesn't hint that he could just do it because of tradition, or just do it because of some intuition, um, although those are plausible positions, but um, potentially, but then, and the, the Kuzari seems to have positions like this. Um, who wrote before the Rambam in, in Andalus, but but it's not doesn't seem anywhere to be the Rambam's position. But that, on, but, yeah. I'm sorry, but uh, I'm sorry, Ralph, but that that seems to invert the necessary and the sufficient condition there, right? I mean, because what what the Rambam seems to be saying is that um, one can't reach an, a, a metaphysical conclusion without establishing the epistemic route to get there. But if Rambam's only so the epistemic is the necessary condition, sure. Right? Um, but if Rambam's point in this in this question that ends up being this kind of more extreme interpretation is simply that we can't we can't have direct access or direct knowledge because of our limitation, then it doesn't thereby justify someone else then saying he's trying to make a, a metaphysical conclusion. He may only be making an epistemic point there. Right. So but it, yes, but in his but since in the earlier chapters he reached that conclusion through knowledge, this is the argument they're trying to make, through knowledge of, through deduction, assuming certain amount of knowledge of the spheres and, uh, and the Gargalim and so on. If he then were to say on their reading that actually we don't really have that knowledge, what they want to say is therefore we can't make that deduction. Therefore, the conclusion is not definitely not true. That would be obviously a logical fallacy, but it's not definitely true either. Yeah, it just didn't seem like it was enough to make that extreme the extreme conclusion that the Rambam is a skeptic about Hashem's existence based on the fact that he th he's already, because he's he's talking about our epistemic limitation. That's all I was trying right, to say. Right, but what well, they want to argue, yes, I understand what you're saying, but I think what they want to argue is that he talks about it specifically at the nerve point of the methodology through which he got to the conclusion that God does exist. Uh, That's what okay. they want to argue. Because now the Rambam actually uses, what he does is he takes, his strategy is to say either there's a creation or there isn't. 
Mm. Um, on the creation argument, you've got God at the end of it. On the, uh, if you take the more Aristotelian view, you've also got God at the end of it. So, but the Aristotelian bit does need, the, or at least they, they assume it is, that we understand enough about uh, the Galgalim to get there. Now, I happen to agree with you. I think if this is the point you're making, that actually the particular bit that he ends up being epistemically skeptical about, our, our epistemic access to certain facts about the Galgalim, actually has nothing to do with how he uses the, the fact of the Galgalim in the, in the argument. So it wouldn't have even undermined that. And you are right, in, we could have a lot of skepticism about where the human brain goes and still be believers in, in God, but it would undermine, what they want to say is if that skepticism was where, it, where they think it sounds like it is, then it would throw, um, it, would, it would basically undermine the entire argument the Rambam had spent several chapters developing. Uh, okay, thanks, thanks. Pleasure. Brilliant. Rav? I, I could, I'm going to I say, Daniel, you. I saw some comments here. So Dan, I agreed with the two oh, comments that Daniel said over here. In effect, he's creating space to survive the community. Yes, and also the one about physics. You can't see electrons. You're going to demonstrate. Yes, I think there's a crap. I'm trying to skim through, see if there's anything else that I uh, missed out. Okay, there's quite a few comments here. Okay, sorry. Yeah, Sina, you want to say goodbye to me? <laughs> I mean, is that, is that what no, you want? Unless you want to stay. But, uh, I'm happy no, to stay. No. If you think it's a good time to end, I'm very happy to leave as well, whatever you want. No, no, no. I think, I think, uh, I think if there's any other comments on the group chat that you want to address if you want to have a quick look we have a quick look doesn't so i'm right explicitly 26 there isn't a problem for those who believe in the eternity of the universe he says that he could do it if they if they if they um if that was proven yes but that's not the same as saying he thinks it's true when you're setting up the mass position that, that okay so i spoke about that when it came up question about the interpretation of skeptic i think we've dealt with that one question for later all these right, that was spoken yes okay. i think i think i've um, God's appearance of the world also shows a Mishmana Prakim. That's true. Yeah, that's fair. Perhaps you could see what would happen to the great eagle actually express the metaphysical position. That would be immediately an argument from authority. And you couldn't question without questioning his honor. Look at the argument with the girl name in the Mishnah Torah intro. Uh, the honor being less important than ability to correctly make an argument. I don't remember on which point that comment was raised. So I'm not, uh, Daniel's honor. Uh, when, when you were trying to, when we were trying to work out whether he's, he's actually going to indicate his, his position or whether he's not going to indicate his position. Right. Okay. That on what these points are, you've got, he's really trying to avoid being, being pinned down anywhere. Right. There are, by the way, if you look at Halbertal's book on the Rambam, he does see, take this possible position that the Rambam was almost being deliberately um, multi-possibility. I, I think the Rambam's articulated position, though, is almost for sure his real position. Um, right. But, but I mean, I'm not sure if, if he's offering other possibilities, at least not on the interpretation of... of uh, oh, there you go, fine. Uh, at least not on the interpretation I quoted from the, the, the scholars I quoted that um, take this kind of view that Rambam did have his position, but he wanted to leave the door open to other positions. In that situation, he does articulate his view. Uh, I'm not sure if he would have necessarily been so upset if somebody argued from authority. If he was that bothered, he would probably not have written the Mishnah Torah the way he did. <laughs> that lends itself to argument for authority, um, even if he himself didn't want to. I mean, if he was that sensitive to God forbid you should ever take me on authority, I doubt he'd have written Mishnah Torah the way he did. Uh, either he wasn't so sensitive to it, or he didn't mind it, or, or he did mind it, but just didn't think people would do that to him. Um, but yeah, but it, it's, it is, you know, you could take the more Halbertalian position and open it up a little bit looser than that as well. What's the, what's the Rob's feeling about the Halbertal book? Uh, look, again, I have to be very careful. I always say I'm still learning the Rambam, you know, I don't know how many times you get through the guide, you always come up with new things. So it could be if I give the talk in three years time, I'll have a different position. Um, 
I think I think first of all, Apatow is a brilliant scholar. He's he's taking the different and he's distilling it, which is by the way a particular skill and ingenuity um, to be able to take incredibly complex things about which is a lot of technical debate and and bring it down to a level where us non-technical non-technically proficient people, or no, no, I don't know all of us, then about all of you, but let's say other readers like like some of us at least, um, and be able to really follow it and find it interesting. I think there's always an incredible skill to be able to do that. And I think that's why he's, he's, he's now he does hint that it's possible the Rambam was leaving lots of doors open. And I think that's most, that's very consistent with what, what the view I was taking, which was uh, the, view I was taking, the view I was articulating on behalf of, of those scholars I was quoting, which doesn't quite go as extreme, uh, as open, very similar, but it's just the Rambam is saying what he sounds like he's saying, but yes, he is also keeping some doors open. So I'd say, you know, that's what I think is, is to me at least seems, seems by far the most plausible reading. Um, but I don't think you can ever, you know, and there's so many brilliant minds have analyzed it in so many different directions. I think you have to always have the humility to realize that. And the Rambam deliberately wrote what he wrote cryptically. You've always got to have the open-mindedness to, it might be, might be different to that. Hmm. Seems like to me when I read it that he was downplaying the the cryptic side of it a little bit. Who Halbertal? Yeah, I think he is, and yeah. I think and I think for for good reason. I think Halbertal is certainly not, although he opens up, but I think he 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 doesn't go as far as the, I think he. I suspect, but he truly he's been on here before. If someone can ask him directly, I hmm. suspect that he wouldn't take a Straussian position. Hmm. Yeah. Thanks. Brilliant. Okay. I'm okay, happy to stay on if you want. You don't need to be polite and British. Those of you who are not British, yeah. don't need to be polite and British and just hang on. We'll say goodbye to everyone. And anyone does want to stay on and talk, I'll stay on for a few more minutes. That sounds fantastic. Uh, Rob, and I want to say a big thank you. Uh, it's such a privilege. I, you know, I, I've met so many of you I've only seen on Facebook chats that I occasionally pop into. I'm not very active on social media usually, but I get sucked into these sort of conversations every so often. And I always thank think, you. I, you know, I think there's so many people here to learn so much from. And uh, so it's good to be able to, to be a Sephardi for the night. I'll pretend, you know, drawn on some imaginary Andalusian roots. Conceptual. I like your idea that it's about thinking. Conceptual. I exactly. do have my it's nothing racial. It's ideological. It's I, ideological. As you know, I've got my skepticism about whether one can actually draw that line. But, uh, <laughs> you know, for the sake of the Chabra tonight, we're, we're fine, proud to be a part of Thank it. <laughs> Thank you so much for having Thank you so much for being here. And uh, looking forward to seeing everybody next week. Uh, Tuesday, not Wednesday. Chabra next week is Tuesday. Well, we'll be going through Hachamatul um, Babadi's Teshuvah. And uh, on that, I bid you all a good night and thank you very much to the Rav. Thank you. Pleasure, pleasure. Good night, everyone. Sina, you're staying on for a few minutes. And anyone um, else who wants to, you're welcome to stay on as well. Yeah, I have to check my wife might. Yeah, okay. Uh, if you need to disappear, I, 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 I wash the baby's bottles and usually at 9.45 I do them. So I've just got to check that... Uh, um, You're a good man. Uh, do that. <laughs> Fine. Okay. Thank you so much. Pleasure. Thank you, Rob. Abby, nice to see you. Nice to see you too, Rabbi. And Rob, you'll send me the recording. Is that right? Okay. Yeah, yeah I'll send that email it to you. Yeah, because we we basically have a YouTube page, and we um we we will be putting it up on there. <laughs> we hope you enjoyed this episode of the Bet Midrash. Subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast player. Don't forget to rate and review. Have a wonderful day.